Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm talking to an old friend of mine today, Patty Chang Anchor, who has written her first book. It's a memoir called Some Nerve, and it's out from Riverhead, and it's basically about confronting various fears that she's had through her life and standing up to them and in many cases vanquishing them. Welcome, Patty. Thank you so much, Ron. I'm so happy to be talking with you. At the beginning of the book, you talk about the motivation for fighting the various fears that you will fight over the course of the story. It really boils down to wanting to create a, not a safe space exactly, but to give your daughters an opportunity to, to enjoy their life to the fullest. I found that through the, the first part of my life, I was so focused on not wanting to disappoint people that I was really uh, focused on succeeding at school and succeeding in my career and making decisions based on that. And so anything where I might fail or look dumb, I just wouldn't even go there. But you can't do that when you're raising kids, you know, like you're, for my kids, I wanted them to try things and whether they did well or belly flopped, like I wanted them to get up and try again. And I realized that I was asking things of them that I wasn't doing myself in, in my own life. And that maybe it was time to, to make a change within myself. In pushing yourself outside your own comfort zone to set that example for your kids, ironically, one of the very first things you did went wrong. I worked really hard to try to overcome my fear of moving water. I almost drowned on a river when I was 18 years old, and ever since then, it affected my ability to enjoy going to the beach because I feel like when you're access to oxygen is compromised, like that's a problem. <laughs> and I, I felt through my adult life, like I couldn't enjoy myself and I couldn't let my kids enjoy themselves. It, it was becoming a, a problem. So I worked hard on swimming laps and learning to relax in the water. Then I went to Jones Beach in New York, into the Atlantic. And one of the first things that happened is that a wave knocked me down and broke my foot. <laughs> I went in saying, you know, I'm not afraid. And I think the Atlantic Ocean said, maybe you should be. <laughs> but you didn't quit then. You, you didn't give up. I wanted to quit. I really wanted to quit because I thought, well, what's the lesson to be learned here? Maybe the lesson to be learned is that the ocean is a vast and scary thing that's much more powerful than I am. And I have no place there. You know, maybe fear was meant to protect me and I wasn't listening to it. And look at this. I got what I deserved. I think that a lot of the voices we have in our heads that say, don't do it because something bad might happen. Those voices were feeling really full of themselves. <laughs> after this experience. See, I told you so. So it took a lot of wherewithal to make myself get up and try again after that. And had you started blogging by that point? Because I know that you were writing a blog called Facing 40 Upside Down, specifically to put yourself out there as you were doing this. Yes. You know, I had started the blog actually a couple of years before, and I started with gentler activities. Like I started with learning how to dive into a swimming pool, learning how to ride a bike, learning how to do a handstand. And all these things had gone pretty well. And so I was thinking all these things that I had been so afraid of, I'd overblown them in my mind. It wasn't that bad. And I found all these other people and encouraged them to face their fears. And for the most part, we were rewarded. This breaking my foot was the first time that something really went awry. And it was something that I had to deal with and my family had to deal with for months afterward. It had real repercussions. So it was an interesting pivot in the story. At what point, as you were blogging about these events, did you say to yourself, I think there might be a book here, not just a blog? It's so funny. When I first started blogging, 
I felt like I was the only one that felt this way. Everyone around me seemed really confident, and I felt like I was sitting out of so many things. I was watching other people have a good time in all sorts of situations. I would go to my local coffee shop, and I was too intimidated to introduce myself to anyone, even though it was the same people every day. I felt like, oh, why would they want to talk to me? There was just so much self-limiting behavior. But in the blog, I started realizing that I wasn't alone. You know, there were other people who felt the same way. Then it came to me that, wow, if we could reach more people, tell more stories, get more in-depth, because a blog is fabulous for connecting in the moment, but getting into the backstories of people, every time you ask someone what they're afraid of and why, oh, you get such an interesting story about where they came from and how they were raised and what their peak experiences were and what their worst experiences were. There were so many stories, and I felt like the book, a book was like the, the forum for doing that. That's really key that you talk about the book's mission being to delve into, as you put it, how ordinary people face everyday fears so that ultimately, although at the core this is your story, it's also very much the story of a lot of other people that you've sought out and spoken to about their fears and in many cases helped them confront those fears. I was amazed at how much I had in common with everybody. Basically, if you ask someone, you know, tell me a story of when you were afraid, the most amazing things come and you bond with that person. It's like they've shared something kind of vulnerable about themselves with you. And realizing that you have this great thing in common and then also realizing through experience from doing it yourself, watching other people do it, helping other people to do it, talking with teachers and mentors and coaches and people whose mission in life is to help people work through their fear, you realize that we also have in common that we can learn, we can grow, we can change. That is the most, for me, empowering, life-changing story to tell. And it must also be a really profoundly moving experience to be able to spend time with people who say, to take some of the examples from the book, you know, a woman who got into a car accident her second time behind the wheel and then spent the next 20 years refusing to learn how to drive further, or the woman who didn't even realize that she was having a heart attack, and to be with them through their life stories. Yeah, I, I think seeing how some people face our worst fears and talking to people who've actually been there and how it affects the rest of their life and how it doesn't actually have to dictate the rest of your life. You know, the woman who was in a terrible car accident had the best reason ever to not get back behind the wheel. Her whole family was badly hurt in that accident. And so no one ever challenged her on it. Everyone was like, of course, it's understandable. You don't want to drive again. But you ask the universe for something and things will come your way. I was thinking, oh, it would be so great to meet a driving instructor who could work with someone with a phobia. And then I found Lynn Fuchs, who was also in a terrible car accident and was badly hurt, but she decided to become a driving instructor so that she could teach people to drive more safely. And she's a counselor, so she helps counsel people through their fear. So I put the two of them together. And watching them influence each other and watching the shifts come and recognizing that you can have a traumatic experience and then take different lessons from it was so interesting. And that even 20 years later that Carmen could get back behind the wheel and try again. It was a testament to, to the strength that is inside all of us. And the being able to take different lessons from those experiences is a key part of overcoming those fears. You talk about the 
idea of not accepting every negative thought that pops into your head to challenge those doubts and to recognize that it's like, okay, my mind is throwing these doubts at me, but those doubts aren't necessarily the reality. Uh, Daniel Amen, I think, calls them automatic negative thoughts, which like the acronym is ANT. And I can just imagine those ants like swarming all over my brain. I call them my Greek chorus of perpetual doubt. You know, it's the voices of all the people who've doubted you in the past and especially yourself. But the brain sends us messages all the time that don't really make sense and that don't really help us in the end. And part of finding that bravery, I think, is being able to sit through the onslaught, the initial fear that always comes, and recognizing that that doesn't have to stay. There are other voices inside you that can say, I can solve this problem. I can figure out a way in. Hang on a sec. I'm going to take a breath and I'll be okay. A lot of these fears that you've described, you mentioned that they circle back to your school years when you were under a lot of pressure to succeed and thus deliberately avoided experiences where you might have the option of failure. You write about how your upbringing was a really key part in shaping that aspect of your personality. I'm Chinese-American, and I was raised by a really hardworking immigrant parents who had survived war, they had survived dislocation, they'd come to this country and sacrificed a lot so that I could have opportunities here. And so I really felt that that was a responsibility, that I needed to make the most out of my education and uphold the, the Chang family honor. I found since uh, I started talking about this more that when I say, oh, I have a Chinese mother, it's sort of a shorthand. Like people understand what that means. And then people say, well, I have a Jewish mother. <laughs> or like I have an Irish mother. I have a... And many, many of us uh, felt this way growing up, that we were groomed to try to make everybody look good and, and to do well. And also to find safety in our life. You know, my parents, I think uh, they had hoped that I would be an engineer, but short of that, maybe an accountant, because that would be very practical. <laughs> and now I'm a writer. I, I... <laughs> but at the same time, you don't blame them. No, no. I think that it's on me that I chose to take the lessons that I chose to take from it. I think I took it to an extreme, in a way, because I, th there was a... Um, a counselor who I heard speak at the Albert Ellis Institute in New York, they have these like public watch therapy and action sessions where they'll apply some of their therapeutic tools on a, a volunteer from the audience. And I was too scared to volunteer. <laughs> but I went up afterwards and I asked John Vitorito, who's the counselor on stage, I said, you know, I have this voice in my head and it, it sounds like my mom. And she's always telling me that like, I'm going to embarrass myself and that it's not going to go well. And he said, you know what, it's your choice to listen to that. And I was like, you have a choice about whether or not to listen to your mother? <laughs> and he was like, you know, if you had 100 kids in your family, a whole lot of them would have said, eh, mom's being protective. I don't need to listen to that. And that kind of blew my mind that it's like, wow, yeah, I chose to amplify those voices in my head. So, yeah, I think that we need to, we, we need to recognize what weight we give to different inputs that we've had through our lives and then choose whether that's what we want to have going forward. Now, you mentioned that your inspiration was to create a different role model or different voices for your own daughters. How did that work out in terms of them being inspired by watching mommy do all these cool things that she was afraid to do? 
Oh, I'm really in it now because my kids, they won't, they don't want to take no for an answer from me anymore. You know, there was this twirly water slide and I really didn't want to go down it. And my daughter was like, come on, mom, face your fears. And she actually said to me, she was like, mom, just say we, you know, it's like we makes everything less scary. And my younger daughter, she had terrible uh, fear of putting her face in the water. We did like years of mommy and me swim classes and nothing was working. Shoot. I, I felt like, oh, am I scarring her by exposing her to the pool over and over again? And then one day she did it and she, was, she said, you know what, mom, sometimes you just got to get your face wet. <laughs> So it's great because I feel like I have been able to model for them that mom can look silly. Like I have looked silly in a bunch of these situations and we can all recover from that. My oldest one is 12. She's probably going to be hugely embarrassed by me soon, <laughs> in which case I'll pull back a little bit. It's the oldest who was having the trouble riding the bike. Yes. yes. You know, I grew up in New York uh, in the Bronx. And so, um, you know, riding a bike, it was like asking to be bike jacked you know like so i had very little exposure to riding a bike and learning myself as an adult which i did as part of facing my fears and watching my daughter do it i just realized there are so many life lessons in learning how to ride a bike like just just to keep your cool and to not overcompensate when you need to come into the middle to not turn the wheel too too fast to keep your eyes up to keep looking ahead into the distance at where you want to go to allow yourself to balance like, I think that often when things are going well, we start thinking, uh-oh, what's wrong? You know, what's going to happen now? And when you're balanced on a bike, things are going well. You don't need to worry. And the idea that you would fall, that you would fall and crash, it would hurt, it would be embarrassing, that is all part of learning how to ride a bike. And so watching my daughter go through it was hugely instructional and inspiring. The idea that you're going to get on a bike and you're probably going to fall ties into one of the lessons that comes out of the story, at some point somebody says to you, pick your life goals and then do them even if they're going to make you uncomfortable in the process. Yeah, I found that there were all sorts of things I was afraid of, like drowning and hurting myself and being embarrassed. Those were real. But then really, in a lot of cases, what I was afraid of was feeling uncomfortable. It's like just the feeling of being out of my element and not quite knowing what to do and not knowing how it was going to turn out. And the physical feeling of heart palpitation, dry mouth, my palms sweating, uncomfortable, ick, who wants that? Like, I'd rather sit on my couch and, you know, eat my ice cream. And I met someone who's a psychologist who said, you know what, part of life is suffering. And there are many things that are worth suffering for. So if you have a life goal, if there's something that is important to you, then you're going to go through all those uncomfortable feelings because it's worth it. And I think for a lot of people, we stop ourselves uh, too soon. It's like the, the thought that we're going to be uncomfortable on a plane will keep us from getting on the plane. What this therapist would say is that the goal of getting to where you need to go is worth the suffering. Often people will say that, you know, we would do anything for our kids. You know, you would lay down on a train track for your kids. So you apply that. Okay, I'm willing to feel uncomfortable in order to give this presentation, which is important, or to make a toast, which is emotionally important for my friend, right? We can choose to do the things that are a little difficult. I had mentioned at the beginning that you're an old friend. I've known you for years since you were in book publicity, where a large part of your job was preparing people who may not have necessarily been comfortable speaking to other people about their work. 
and preparing them for the moment when they were probably going to have to go out, and whether it was at a bookstore or to a reporter or a radio host or something like that, and talk about their work. Now, what's it been like for you finally being on the other end of that process, being the one who has to go out there? Oh, my gosh. I have so much more empathy now. <laughs> I'm like, okay, all my authors who I've ever worked with, I so respect you. It takes a lot of courage to go out there and, and feel like you have a story that is worth people's time, that you feel like you want to take up their valuable time and share a piece of yourself with them, come what may, whether they like it or not. I think most of us don't want to feel criticized. We want to be embraced and accepted. And when you put yourself out there, you never know exactly what's going to happen. I have always felt just passionate about uh, the importance of storytelling and the importance of connecting with people and of sharing ideas. I just feel like we're put on this earth to connect with each other. Writing is one way of doing it and speaking is a way of doing it. And I just feel like there's so much competition now for people's attention that you can't just rely on your written words alone to reach people. And that if you have an opportunity to do a radio show or to stand up and talk to people in your workplace or your church or at a bookstore, you should take it because otherwise you're choosing to be smaller with your message rather than, than reaching more people. I've had a lot of harrowing experiences speaking in public since I've started doing it for the book. And I've always felt like I've enjoyed public speaking because I like getting to know people. I, I like exchanging ideas. But I have been heckled. I have blanked in the middle of a presentation where I had to look at my note card, but I always tell people, be prepared, have a note card. I've had technical issues, you know, with computers and with microphones and, and that kind of thing. Rick Frischman, who is this old publicity pro, um, said to me, you know what, though? You just have to remember that people understand that you're just human and that stuff happens. He used more colorful language than that, but... <laughs> Stuff happens. You roll with it. I think that that's part of living a full life, a fun life, is to have some spontaneity in there. And that's why live TV is so much fun. And that's why live to tape interviews are so much fun. You don't exactly know what's going to happen. And we love to see bloopers, right? We love to see when things go wrong and everyone's surprised by it. So if you could put yourself in that position of I'm allowed to have some bloopers and that's a sign that I really put myself out there and be proud of it. As an author, though, in addition to the fears and anxieties about your own performance out there, you might also develop fears and anxieties about the book's performance. How did your years on the corporate side of publishing, seeing the reality of what happens to books day in, day out, how did that prepare you for facing your book's release. I think that understanding the realities of the marketplace is a huge thing because I know what it takes. I know how hard it is to get a book ready for publication, how many people have to work on it, the process that my book went through, editing, legal reads, fact-checking, copy editing, design, art, production. I feel like it's miraculous that my book came to be. It's the product of so many people's work. So I never took any of that for granted. I think that's great. And then the realities of putting it out into the marketplace and competing with hundreds of thousands of other books, plus whatever is going on in the world at the time. It's like, I, I remember I was pitching during the O.J. Simpson trial, during the Clinton impeachment, during many rounds of presidential elections and Olympics and where like everyone's focus is somewhere else. There's always going to be things that are competing with your message. So I, I feel like I have a good handle on, on what we're up against. And I also feel like 
offering your message in as many different formats as possible is so important now because people take their information in differently. And so my book, there's an audio version, there's an ebook version, I have a blog, we're talking for a podcast. So understanding that people are busy and that you're going to try to get your message in as a, a appealing a way as possible. I think authors need to go the extra mile to do that these days. Now, one of the aspects of the book's infrastructure and the format of going out and talking to people about their fears is that you're already meeting a ton of inspiring people. But were there any writers that were inspiring, perhaps as a a model of how to tell these kinds of stories? Oh, absolutely. I love memoir writers who can sort of open up a new world and make you feel that you're right there with them. I love Bill Bryson, uh, A Walk in the Woods. I think it was very pleasurable walk in the woods with Bill Bryson that I felt like I was a part of. And Cheryl Strayed's Wild, just masterful. In terms of writing craft, like craft books, uh, Heather Sellers, in one of her books, she, she wrote page by page and chapter by chapter, which are all sorts of different writing exercises. And she said something like, use the fear to guide you. You know, it's like the fear of writing is huge. Like the fear that your ideas aren't good enough, they're not interesting enough, that you aren't going to do them justice, that I had all these great stories to tell and that what if I couldn't do it well? You know, that's enough to keep you from ever typing a single word. And Heather Sellers said, you know, the fear is the, use it to illuminate your path. That if you feel fear, that that's where you should be. So I felt like I had these stories about all these people overcoming their fears to tell. And then this kind of meta story of like my facing my fear of doing a good enough job with it. Now that this book is out, where is your writing taking you these days? I feel like I'm endlessly inspired by people around me. They tell me a story and my editor, Becky Salatan, once said, she said, follow the heat. You know, like you, it's almost like putting your hand over a stove and you could tell where the heat is gathering. I've found some really interesting stories that kind of blend fear with other basic emotions. And that may be where I go, but I don't want to talk too much about it yet. It's brewing. Well, we will see what bubbles up eventually. In the meantime, I've been talking with Patty Chang Anchor about Some Nerve. It's published by Riverhead. And you have been listening to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I thank you for listening. And I hope that if you are subscribing on iTunes, that you might rate or review this podcast. And then join us again for another episode soon. Take care.